0: Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negor Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. Last week, I joined another podcast on Talk World Radio with host David Swanson to talk about U.S. Iran relations and the current state of nuclear negotiations in Vienna. Here's our conversation on Talk World Radio.
1: Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about Iran. Our guest, Negar Murtazavi, is an Iranian-American journalist and political analyst and host of the Iran podcast, Based in Washington, D.C., she has been covering Iranian affairs and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East for over a decade. She's a regular media commentator and has appeared on CNN, NBC, NPR, BBC, France 24, Al Jazeera, I-24 News. And her writing has been published in Foreign Policy Magazine, The Intercept, Politico, and The Independent. She has also been named by Middle East Policy Council among 40 under 40 leaders, shaping the present and future of U.S.-Middle East relations. I hope that's true. And she and I will be speaking in Washington, D.C. on August 5th at an event that you can find at worldbeyondwar.org. Nagar, welcome to Talk World Radio.
0: Thank you for having me. Great to see you, David.
1: Thank you for coming on and for the work you're doing. Uh, what, is, what is happening uh, now in Iran and in U.S. relations toward Iran?
0: So as um, I'm sure your audience has also been following uh, the nuclear negotiations, the main point of contact or indirect contact between the U.S. and Iran currently, Um, is at a phase of stalemate after about uh, eight rounds of negotiations in Vienna across two administrations in Tehran, one outgoing, the moderate administration of President Rouhani, and then the incoming hardline or conservative administration of the new President Raisi, uh, with the Biden administration on the other side. Um, There have been different periods of ups and downs, um, a few instances when we thought both sides are getting close to a deal, a few times when we thought the whole thing is falling apart and we're we've been at a stalemate for about a few months now and I think the possibility or the opportunity rather for both sides to get an agreement is just decreasing. Um, As time goes by and we get further into the stalemate, I think just to look at the big picture, um, both sides need to make some concessions or more concessions and try to meet somewhere um, halfway because obviously they haven't been able to make that agreement. I think uh, the positive side is that both sides still want an agreement, either the current deal, the JCPOA or any form of a nuclear agreement. But um, the negative is that neither has been able to uh, bridge that gap and get to the other one. And there's just a possibility that the whole thing will fall apart uh, despite both sides wanting it. I'm,
1: I'm a little bit slow. I don't claim to be a genius on this, but I don't understand why if the Biden administration wanted an agreement, they didn't act Way back when, before the elections, as everyone was screaming at them to do first day in office before Biden even moved into the White House. Why wait, knowing you would make it much more difficult if you actually wanted to reach an agreement? I don't get it.
0: Well, yes, David, I was actually one of those people also and many others who were essentially saying this: there's a golden window of opportunity Um, with the Biden administration, overlapping with the same administration in Tehran who engaged in negotiations with the Obama-Biden administration before President Trump and made that agreement, the same foreign minister, the same negotiator, the same president. So it would have been a smooth and easy process for these two sides to sort of get back together and literally pick up where they left off four years before that and it was a golden window of opportunity because we knew the exact date of Iran's presidential election from many years ago it wasn't an unexpected event we knew there would be a change of administration in tehran because it was president rohani's second and final term anyways he couldn't stay so there was no magical um, way of of the of this uh, happening happening in any other way so that six months that for six months that president Biden had in office, maybe not first day, but at least the first month, if not in January, the second month in February, because this is within the powers of the U.S. president, the same way President Obama made the deal. It was in the form of an executive order. It's not a treaty. The same way President Trump pulled out of the deal with the stroke of a pen of the previous U.S. president. And the same thing was within the power of President Biden. And, you know, the whole thing could have been done. At the beginning of the administration, they could then, once the U.S. rejoined the JCPOA, they could then sit down and negotiate the terms of return to full compliance. Because let's not forget, to this day, Iran is still in the JCPOA, but out of compliance. The United States is outside of the JCPOA. So what the Iranians have been demanding is, why don't you guys come into the deal first, and then we will both be in not in full compliance, and then we'll negotiate a return to full compliance. But... Unfortunately that didn't happen. The why um I guess President Biden or the administration and those responsible for strategizing his Iran policy um will have that answer. I don't even know if there was a strategy because for the first few months we thought okay maybe they're uh, coordinating with the Israelis, they're coordinating with their um Arab allies, the Arab monarchies in the Persian Gulf, you know, something that the Obama administration wasn't really successful in doing because Uh, U.S. partners and close allies in the region were eventually not happy with any form of deal and diplomacy with Iran. And a year and a half into Biden's uh, administration, President Biden's uh, office, we see that they haven't been successful in doing that. So they should have just gotten this over with. And as one other analyst recently uh, mentioned, and I very much agree with that, just Get something out of the way, because the world is just full of unexpected troubles and problems and invasions of other countries. Things just keep happening. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't get less busy down the line. So this would have just been, Iran's nuclear program, one problem to get done, put it out of the way. Yes, take some heat. We knew there would be political backlash by Republicans by U.S. partners, and by certain ha- more hawkish Democrats whenever this agreement happens. I think the mistake, and you know, I'm just, just reading um, uh, this, is that they probably thought they could figure out a magic way of getting a deal with Iran without making all of these parties upset. And that's just, I think, impossible. So you have to, as I once said in an interview with Al Jazeera, it's like, ripping the the band-aid at some point you just rip it yes it's gonna hurt for a little bit but then you get it done with but look how how it's dragging a year and a half into the Biden administration and finally I just want to say the Iranians obviously are also very responsible for sort of not meeting them somewhere halfway along the way especially after this uh, new administration came into power but again that's why we called those first six months a golden window of opportunity because uh, we expected this that this would happen
1: so what you you say Nagar that both sides should make concessions uh, and that that might help get a deal what what should each side concede
0: well I think for from Iran's viewpoint obviously the Iranians don't see themselves at the wrong here and I don't necessarily disagree with that with only when it comes to the jcpoA there's so many Differences or problems, uh, between Iran and the U.S. As the American side calls it, the malign activities on Iran across the region, in the country, towards the West, and also how Iran sees the U.S. as you know interfering in the region and all of that. But when it comes to the nuclear deal, they see themselves as the party who was abiding by their commitments, who was very much within the deal, full commitment, as it was, um, you know, affirmed report and report again by the UN, the UN watchdog. And all of a sudden this president, former President Trump, came into the US who just didn't like this deal because it was done by his democratic predecessor, President Obama. And he had promised for no reason because the Trump administration kept trying to say Iranians are cheating, you know, they will be cheating, or at some point they will not comply. And that just didn't happen, even by the reports of the State Department, and so President Trump just. Pulled out of that deal and essentially violated uh, U.S. commitments to something that had been uh, committed by the previous administration, and the Iranians, in a way, waited out the Trump administration, hoping that if a Democrat comes into power, and you know who would be the best Democrat than. President Obama's own vice president from the Obama-Biden administration, who as a candidate had promised that he would return to the JCPOA, that this is the best deal that's available out there. He had been very vocal in criticizing the Trump administration for pulling out of the deal, for unraveling diplomacy. His senior officials right now when he was a candidate were also vocal against the Trump administration. And so they're thought, okay, come January 2021, this former vice president that we, in a way, negotiated with the, with his previous administration is going to return to a deal. And frankly, some, some of us Iran, U.S.-Iran watchers here in D.C., were also hoping that this would be an easy campaign promise by President Biden because the deal is done. Everything is on paper. You really don't need negotiations. You just literally return back to where we were. And it would be politically easy because it's just doing a U-turn on a wrong decision by President Trump, who you had criticized in the past. But that just didn't happen. And so from the Iranian viewpoint, it's the U.S. who needs to take that big leap or get closer to the Iran side. The main point of disagreement in the past few months seems to be Iran demanding that the U.S. remove the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, um, from the... Foreign terrorist list, which the Trump administration designated, and in a way publicly and vocally described that as a way to build a wall for the next administration to prevent them from returning to the deal. The American side says that that's not a um, nuclear-related designation, and they're refusing to do that, or they want Iran to take further steps in exchange for that. So it's just been, and and in a way we. remember that this is more of a symbolic designation. From the Iranian viewpoint, it's an issue of prestige. From the U.S. viewpoint, it's this political uh, price that they have to pay domestically. But at the end of the day, even if that designation is removed, there will still be so many U.S. sanctions remaining on various uh, entities of the IRGC. So in practice, it doesn't make too much of a difference but from the iranian viewpoint it's a big step and especially from this administration's viewpoint the current hardline administration in iran it's even a more major step because they want to show to their own constituency and base um, that they could get a deal that's better than the than the previous one that the moderates had agreed so it's just i think yes it's a complex issue but it's also unfortunate that this is becoming the reason to completely unravel an agreement that I think both sides want. And they're not a whole world apart. They're just, you know, away by a gap that that could potentially be bridged, meet somewhere, maybe not necessarily halfway, but put off some, some of the issues further down the line. But, um, you know, just it requires concessions from both sides and from the Iranians too.
1: We're speaking with Nigar Mortazavi, who's the host of the Iran podcast. Uh, it seems now, after a year and a half has gone by and Biden has, has violated and broken and trashed, you know, 56 other campaign promises, that it would be harder to be, to pick this as the one campaign promise that he does keep. Uh, it would have been easier to keep it at first. Um, and, and it seems... It seems so childish. They're talking about labeling Russia a a terrorist now. Uh, It it seems so childish for name-calling to be the sticking point in a negotiation that's supposedly about public safety, supposedly has to do with protecting people from nuclear weapons, and they won't stop calling Iran a nasty name, and that's the sticking point. It seems to, to make it about pride and ego and machismo, uh, more than about anything substantive, doesn't it?
0: Well, look, any form of sanctions or pressure or designation in Washington has had bipartisan support over the years. No one's ever paid a political price for putting more pressure on Iran, even if it's a failed policy. And, uh, you know, but there's always backlash when to try when you try to lift any of that pressure or reverse it. So not issuing new sanctions might be easier than trying to reverse um, a mistake or actually a bad policy of, of of your predecessor, even if you were the one who had publicly and vocally called that a bad policy. So in a way there's this minefield or a trap laid out for for the Biden administration or for whoever the next Democrat would be to prevent them um, from returning to diplomacy with Iran. But you know, at the end of the day, this was obvious. We knew this and of of anyone, the, the same people who worked in the Obama Biden administration knew this very well, that there will be backlash when you reach out to Iran an adversary. There will be backlash when you negotiate and there will be massive backlash when you make an agreement with them. Um, you know, the former Israeli prime minister it sort of invited himself to the U.S. Congress and made a whole speech against President Obama, which was unprecedented. Uh, Republicans lost, uh, completely lost it when the agreement with Iran happened. And certain Democrats also broke from the Obama administration and really publicly went against them. So all of this had been done in the past. And to to think that they didn't know this would happen or that they were afraid of doing it while they were promising it, it's just, it's puzzling. Because I think by kicking the can down the road, they haven't made things easier for themselves. They've just delayed what seems like a difficult ripping of a Band-Aid. But any, at any point... It would still hurt, and I think, and I agree with you, the time has just not been on their side. So the further down the road for the U.S. side, the more difficult this will be. And now we're getting close to the U.S. midterm elections and things, anything global will be even much more domestic. From the Iranian viewpoint, yes, the Iranians think they're the ones who didn't violate the deal and it's the U.S. and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's Iranian economy who's being crushed by rippling economic sanctions um, and, you know, that's targeting almost every major industry in Iran. And it's Iran who needs this agreement from an economic viewpoint more than the U.S., positive or negative, depending on how you look at it. The unraveling of this agreement will not really impact U.S. economy. Although with with Russia and Ukraine, that whole thing has changed, the global dynamic, because interestingly, if Iran is able to sell its oil in the global market, um, that would help this whole uh, price issue. But that's just a new thing since February. But anyways, it's uh, economically Iran needs the Iranian public needs this deal and the economic um, return even more than the U.S. and Um, so that's why I think they've so far stayed in the deal. They've continued the negotiations, but then at the same time, they also have these demands that they want the U S side to meet. And let's also not forget the Iranians watch U S domestic politics, very closely in elections. And they also understand that there's a high chance or any chance that this might be president Biden's only term. There's a chance for a Republican or even Donald Trump come back. So, Whatever agreement they make might be unraveled again in two, three years. Um, and that's also a long term thinking that they have. What is the short term return for them? One, two, three years. And what is the long term strategy? But then at the end of the day, I think as an observer, they need the economic benefits of this deal more than the US. So that's why I think they should also put more effort into bridging this gap.
1: We're speaking with Nagar Murtazavi. We've had as guests on this program uh, Gareth Porter, who wrote a book uh, called Manufacturing Crisis about the lack of evidence of any Iranian nuclear program and all the decades of lying about it. Um, and and as another guest, Jeffrey Sterling, who went to prison uh, falsely probably uh, accused of leaking the information about Operation Merlin, the CIA plan to give nuclear bomb plans to Iran. And and Jeffrey believes that this was part of of a framing operation to lie about Iran. Uh, In 2015, there was this big debate in Washington with the Republicans saying, we must uh, attack Iran because of Iran's nuclear program. And the Democrats saying we must have this agreement with Iran because of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, And and I said, well, I agree with what one side wants to do, but they're both lying. Uh, And years from now, everybody in the United States is going to believe one or the other and going to believe that Iran either has nuclear weapons or is about to have nuclear weapons or has been working for decades to build nuclear weapons. Both sides are lying. This whole debate is going to hurt us down the road. Uh, That seems to have turned out right. Uh, I I mean, what you don't have in the in the debate at all is the idea that Iran is not a nuclear weapons threat. Do, Do you see it that way or not?
0: So look, let me take a step back, going further back. Um, at some point, there was, and this is in the mid-2000s, there was a discovery that there seemed to be a clandestine program that was beyond a civilian program. There were some attempts in Iran by the Iranian side um, to explore what could potentially be a weapons program. It didn't get anywhere. It was discovered, and the Iranians... Decided to, you know, not go down that path and uh, by the CIA's admission and reaffirmation as recently as this year, um, Iran's nuclear program right now, for, for years, has been civilian and it remains civilian right now. There's also a religious decree, what's called a fatwa, issued by the Supreme Leader after that whole. Um, discovery of a potential weapons program that um, bans, essentially, he banned nuclear weapons as, a, as weapons of mass destruction. So it's religiously and also politically decided in Tehran that they won't want to go down um, that road, at least until this supreme leader is in power and alive. So I think that religious decree stands that fatwa is meaningful, both for their religious followers and also politically. And I think also um, from a pure um, practical perspective, observing Tehran um, as an analyst, they just haven't made that calculation that they want to go for a bomb. They are trying to push the limits. I think what they're doing, push the limits of this um, nuclear program while keeping it civilian and sort of create a sense of urgency Um, for the other side, in a way, escalate, but not cross that ultimate red line because Iran is still a member of the NPT. Iran is still technically within the JCPOA and um, is just trying to reduce compliance in a reversible way. Now, that may not be the case forever. I can come back on your show and talk about it whenever that changes. But right now, the head of CIA, this head of CIA has recently affirmed that the program remains civilian. It has been civilian for many years. And what Iran is getting at, and and again, as you're saying, the media frenzy and the analysis of this is just so uh, overstated that at the end that when you ask an average person, and this is not just in the US in the global scene, a lot of people think, if you ask them who is the one nuclear state in the Middle East, they would say Iran, where Iran doesn't even have one bomb. And we know that there's another nuclear state in the Middle East who has multiple dozens uh, of nuclear warheads. So it's um, what the Iranians are trying to do is to get to that point where they may be considered a threshold, meaning have enough enriched uranium and fissile materials to potentially... Uh, be able to make one bomb once they make that decision. Again, going back to what I said previously, I don't think that's a calculation in Tehran right now, and they haven't decided to break out of the civilian program and go for, uh, for a weapons program. But what would make all of these speculations and analysis so much easier, if, the, if there was constant monitoring on Iran's nuclear program, if there were UN cameras, at every side, and if Iran was cooperating with the UN as part of that big nuclear agreement or the JCPOA, that was the whole purpose of the JCPOA. Yeah, I would be happy if any country, including Iran, uh, would have a civilian nuclear program that's constantly monitored and safeguarded and has inspections going in and out. But, you know, as a response to US pulling out of the deal unilaterally and imposing this economic pressure on Iran, the Iranians are also Um, reducing their compliance and sort of pushing that limit. So I think the solution, as I'm sure the Biden administration also knows, or candidate Biden at least had announced, would be to return to the deal that exists, which is the best possible. You know, there's also this unicorn
1: deal that everyone
0: talks about, a better, stronger, longer, whatever uh, you call it, deal. But that deal doesn't exist. Whatever exists right now would be better than just not having any.
1: And, and this deal, correct me if I'm wrong, Nagar, he imposes the strongest inspections uh, that any country has ever had. Um, we've got just a few minutes left. I think we should maybe say the name Israel uh, if people are unaware of what nation uh, in that part of the world has nuclear weapons. Uh, it is Israel. What What is the influence of Israel and of Saudi Arabia and of other countries uh, on this deal or lack thereof?
0: Well, Israel, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, or the GCC countries, as U.S. closest allies and partners, as some like to call them in the region, um, and rivals or adversaries of Iran, who's also a regional power in in the Middle East, um, they tried very much to prevent not just a deal. I don't think it's necessarily the nuclear deal with Iran per se, because everything when we talk about the nuclear deal. Uh, Who would not think that this is a good idea, you know, putting safeguards and monitoring and inspections on a nuclear program, any nuclear program, let alone your adversary. But I think it was the rapprochement or the improving of relations between the U.S. and Iran that worried uh, these partners. Arab uh, monarchies were afraid that if the U.S., if Iran gets a little bit closer to the U.S., because it's been four, four decades of just... Pure animosity and a lack of relations. So, if, if that changes a little bit, um, that that would take away from their closeness or support from the US. And also, the Israelis, I think, had this political fear that if a rapprochement happens uh, between the US and Iran, that that would impact their relationship with the US. Ironically, the Israeli intelligence and security establishment that make general consensus among them and they've have been speaking up after President Trump pulled out of the deal, was that this deal is actually good for Israel's security because it safeguards and monitors and inspects, it allows for all of those on Iran's nuclear program. And if Iran's nuclear program or a potential weapons program or a bomb could be a threat to to anyone, it would first and foremost be for Israel. So naturally, Israelis, from a security viewpoint, were thinking that this is actually a good thing. But politically, that's completely different. A lot of it. Has to do with domestic politics, not just in Washington, but also in Israel and the Arab countries. And also their long term view that um, thinking that if U.S. and Iran relations change in any way, that that would impact their unconditional support from Washington. So I generally think, you know, a peaceful and diplomatic resolution to conflicts is good for, for everyone across the region, especially civilians. Um, who live the conflicts and who get impacted and potentially killed by those conflicts. But um, when it comes to the government or the states, our powers, um, there's, there's different viewpoints.
1: There are indeed, uh, thank you for your viewpoints. Nagar Mortazavi is host of the Iran podcast. Uh, You can find her work. We'll put links up at talkworldradio.org. Nagar and I will be joining a bunch of terrific speakers at an event in Washington, D.C. on August 5th. You can find that at worldbeyondwar.org. Nagar, thank you for everything you're doing and for coming on Talk World Radio.
0: Thanks, David. My pleasure. And thank you as well. See you on August 5th.